Morning, everyone. Welcome this morning. Glad that we can be together as we, um, as we prepare for uh, looking at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is like the next to the last in a series uh, called Summer Shorts, Short Books of the Bible. I'm uh, excited about our time uh, together this morning. I'll open by talking a little bit about the church, uh, but first uh, we'll pray together. Let's pray. Father, we trust and ask and pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. We're mindful that we live in a very difficult, dark, and confusing time, but mindful as well that we needn't be clueless in the midst of this, that your Holy Spirit will guide us uh, to be people of light and hope. Uh, we're mindful as well that moving toward light is threatening, difficult, re uh, requires a great deal of us, faith. So we pray that you'd shepherd us this morning. Speak to each of our hearts individually, collectively, as we listen for your voice. We'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, my wife and I were hiking in the Alps as part of my sabbatical, and one of many memorable experiences was coming to a, a juncture in the trails. So it's like a Y in the road, you know? And uh, we were looking for Trail 20, and there, were, there was a sign uh, pointed to the left that said Trail 20, and a sign pointed to the right that said Trail 20. This is a bit of a challenge, right, for navigating, and so we didn't know which way to go, basically. And we started up one trail, and uh, the whole time, there's a feeling of dread. Are we on the wrong trail? Like, uh, the longer we stay on this trail... Uh, we'll have to backtrack if we're on the wrong trail. But if it's the right trail, this is good, but how do we know? So uh, pretty quickly, we stopped uh, moving at all and uh, looked at the map. And we, not only did we look at the map, but we looked at the map with a compass. And the, the two together, the map and the compass, became our reference point. And we actually learned from doing that that we were, in fact, on the wrong trail. So we hiked back took the other one. I don't know why they were both marked. It's irrelevant. But we were at a crossroads, and the reference point is what determined which way to go. Here's why I share the story. I believe strongly, actually, that the church is at a crossroads. In North America uh, and, and in Europe in particular, it's growing rapidly in the South. Uh, but in North America and Europe, the church is at a crossroads. Uh, my fear is that we're heading toward a cliff. We're going to crash into a canyon of irrelevance. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we're on the right path as the church. Uh, to do that, we need a map and compass. And so we're going to talk this morning a little bit about what do, what do we mean by the map and compass. What's the church's reference point? We'll get to that. But first, let me explain why I think the church is at a crossroads. As you all know, uh, we live in a world increasingly divided, polarized, and tribal. There's evidence everywhere. Uh, Charlottesville is but the most recent indicator, but it feels like in our current 24-7 news cycle every day, there's further evidence that our culture is increasingly polarized. There's a, there's a racial divide, of course, far from healed in our nation, been around for 400 years, and it's not something that's over there, it's here, it's in our city. Uh, it's part of who we are. Systemic racism has not been healed, has not been overcome. But this is not the only division that's in our culture uh, that's creating this tribalism and name-calling and anger, withdrawal, and hate. There's a wealth divide that's contributing to the tribalism. There, there's a political divide, of course. There's an education divide. 
And each one of these divides further fractures and isolates uh, and, and fragments our culture into little subsets, little subcultures. And people are living in kind of these echo chambers with gigantic blind spots, but not listening to anybody other than people who think and believe just like them. Uh, and so those are all kinds of divides. And then I would add, there's a divide that is for me more troubling than any of these divides. As bad as all of these divides are, the biggest and most troubling divide is the reality that Christian, we Christians are divided and that we're dividing over these things that are also dividing the world. In other words, we're mirroring all the divisions that we see in our culture, only in our case, it's worse because we elevate our divisions to the status of, and I put this in quotes, contending for the truth. In other words, we bring God into the argument, and we end up saying on issues like, um, uh, like a healthy debate about immigration or economic stuff or taxes or the environment, we end up saying, basically, if you don't think the way I do, then you hate Jesus. And this, this ends up uh, creating fragmentation. And we do this on the left because we see on the left uh, lots of evangelical statements and publications, uh, such as, you know, the red letter Christian newsletter, which is like, uh, this is what Jesus says, you know, and Sojourner's Magazine. You see it on the right with groups like Focus on the Family, uh, and we're shooting at each other all the time. And this is quite alarming because both sides do it. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, sex, money, power, doctrine, we divide. Race, we divide. Environment, we divide. Uh, so, the fact that we divide is why I'm alarmed. And here's, here's the reason I should be alarmed and you should be alarmed. We're, the thing is, by dividing and fragmenting and being okay with that, uh, we're miss, this is a phrase, we're missing a forest for the trees. And if you know the saying, you know, if you're looking at one particular tree, you think, oh, this is, you're worried about this tree. But the thing is, we've got to fly above the church for just a minute here and understand, you know, what is God's vision for the church? And God's vision is not a monocrop. Do you understand what I mean by that? God's vision is, God is not creating a monocrop of whites or Republicans or those who believe that single-payer health care is the only way to go, or those who believe that government is incompetent, so power should be ceded to the free market, or those who believe that free markets are incompetent, and so the government has to step in with controls. The forest isn't made up of only people who believe in shelter cities, or only people who don't. Who, like, who constitutes the forest that is the church? Because hear me, the forest is diverse, right? Go to any forest, the Amazon, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, the Cascades, the Appalachian Mountains, the Alps, the Rockies, and what do you see? Here's what you don't see, a single tree constituting the whole forest. And never, never, ever, <laughs> forests are diverse. So what constitutes the forest that is the church? The answer's in the scriptures. Stand, please, and we'll read together. Let's read. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Next. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Next. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. All nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. 
so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And one more. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Please be seated. And what you see just by reading these few scriptures <clears throat> is that the main narrative of the Bible is God re re restoring something that was broken in the fall back in Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, what you saw with the introduction of sin into the universe is this uh, vast alienation and division, right? Beginning with Adam blaming Eve and then Cain killing Abel, and it goes on and on and on. We see human failed attempts at unity, and then there's this stunning declaration uh, that God makes that in spite of a long history of failed attempts at unity, God is making a way in Christ for real unity. And it's not just a possibility, but this is, hear me, this is where history is headed. God is bringing down every dividing wall. God is creating one vast family from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, rich, poor, black, white, every, everything. It's all there. So that's where history is headed. That's what God is doing. And the main narrative of the Bible is that God is creating this one vast family. And so our calling then is to live into that now and portray when we gather and in our life together that dividing walls have been broken down. That's our calling. So uh, how do we do that? Well, uh, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, here's what we see. We see a vision and two exhortations. So first, God creates a vision. The vision is this vast family that's built on a foundation of truth and love. And then two exhortations. First exhortation, walk uh, in truth. Second exhortation, walk in love. Easy enough, right? So, so we have to see this vision to begin with. Because this is the life for which we're created. Like, in other words, what's the Christian life about? Well, God's vision is that we would have this vast family built on, on, on this foundation of truth and love. So John uh, wrote John, right? And the, 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 the John who wrote John is the guy in, uh, among the 12 disciples. He's the one who refers to himself, and I love this, he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Is that great? Like, in other words, when... When he's writing narrative passages, uh, he doesn't say, and Jesus spoke to John, and he doesn't say, and Jesus spoke to me. He says, and Jesus spoke to the disciple who Jesus loved, which everyone knew as him. So he's, it's like he's, he's kind of, you'd think he's kind of rubbing it in, right? Like, like, oh, Jesus loves me more than anybody else. But that's really not what he's doing. He's trying to understand, I think he's trying to underscore something very important here, that Ultimately, foundationally and fundamentally, 
When we're called into the faith, we're called into a passionate relationship of what? Love with Jesus Christ. This becomes foundational. So uh, on that foundation, John is writing, 1 John in particular, uh, as, a, as a reaction to faith becoming purely private. In other words, he's writing to say, look, the point of, of your salvation isn't to provide you an escape from the fires of hell. That's not the point. Like, that happens, but that's not the point. And it's also not, also not to provide kind of this personal ethic for you. Like, hey, now that you're a Christian, don't get drunk. Stay married. Pay your taxes. Go to church. Serve at a committee. That's not what he wrote. In other words, it's not that these things don't matter. They do matter. But they, they only matter, the way we actually behave only matters to God and to, and to John here as the spokesman of God. Uh, these things only matter if they're, if they're real fruit coming from the right root, if I could say it that way. And, 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 and so John's writing here in order to articulate the real gospel. And the, here's the real gospel. The real gospel is this. The, the true good news is that, is that uh, our faith is built on this, this uh, relationship being inextricably woven together between us and Jesus. And Jesus is here truth and love. So look at, look at 1 John uh, 2, verse 21. Here's what John says. He says, listen, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. So he's not writing to people who don't know. They do know. But even, watch this. Even though they know, they're drifting away. This is super important. You know, they know they're drifting away. Now, why is this important? Because John understands that it's actually incredibly challenging to remain true to our calling from the beginning of our life in faith to the very end. Because all of us, like in a default mode, all of us will drift away. Here's the book of Hebrews. Pay very close attention to what you've heard, lest you, what, drift away. Either pay attention or you'll drift away. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Don't be seduced away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You can drift away, you can be seduced away, or 1 Corinthians 10, you can walk away. Don't be like those people who were in Egypt and they, you know, they were delivered out of slavery and the Red Sea parted and they saw miracle after miracle after miracle and then when they had the opportunity to continue on with God, they said, nope, we're staying right here. In fact, no, we're not even staying. We're going to go back to Egypt. We're choosing slavery. Drift away, be seduced away, walk away. Listen, don't be passive or you'll find yourself ultimately misrepresenting the gospel that you say with your lips you believe. So that, 1 John 121, he says, I've written to you because you know the truth. Okay, now, well, that's interesting. What does this mean? The truth. You know the truth. Oh, that means, you know, you know the 10, you know the ten things you're supposed to do or not to. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Honor your father and mother. Keep the, that's the truth, man. You know it. No, that, listen, that's, that is truth, but that, that's not what he's referring to. Uh, when, so when he says they know the truth, here's how we understand the truth. Listen. Uh, you know the truth, verse 21, and then look at verse 22 of 1 John 2. Who's the liar? But the one who denies Jesus is the Christ. In other words, this is foundational. The truth that we know is a person, Christ. And Jesus said it, right? I'm what? I'm the way. You know the best? The truth and the life. I'm the, way, I'm the truth. So the truth is a person, not a set of ethics. And this is really very important that we understand foundationally, we're called to declare the person of Christ, the work of Christ, 
our union with Christ, and then watch this, our ethics flows out of our union with Christ. Our ethics flows out of our union with Christ, so we're called always to be at the center, foundationally, people of a person. Not just people of a book, not people of a code, not people of a philosophy, people of a person. We are yoked with Christ. So the good news, the gospel, is that Christ has defeated all the powers of evil. His kingdom is coming, a new world order, and in that new world order, every dividing wall that has alienated people from each other will be broken down. So God has fixed the brokenness vertically with us and God. God has fixed the brokenness internally uh, with, between our own soul and spirit, and God has fixed divi dividing walls. Every dividing wall, God has fixed because Christ is the reconciling power of the universe. That's truth, Right? So when Jesus declares that he's the truth, he becomes kind of then, for us, the manner in which we determine ethics and calling. Jesus becomes the reference point, right? Uh, so in Galatians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, look, my prayer is that you would, like, do good things? No. That's not, uh, my, here's Paul's prayer. Galatians 4, 17, I'm like a child, I'm like a parent, in, like a, a mother in birth pains, so desperate am I that what? that Christ would be formed in you. So that like the final ethic here is this. My one single desire is that you would display Christ. And if we had that as a reference point, it would change much of our behavior, right? And what do I mean by that? It doesn't mean that instantly we all think alike. It means that progressively over time, all of us are aligned at the same reference point. And so over time, Ephesians chapter 4, we're moving into unity. We're increasing unity over time. Why? One single reference point. So if he's Jesus, <clears throat> we're all aligning to him. He's the ethic. This is the book, Hebrews chapter 1, where Hebrews says, look, in the past God spoke in many ways. He spoke through the law. There were stone tablets. There were ten commandments. There were 600 interpretations of those commandments called the, called the Torah. You know, there's the, so there's the law. There's the prophets. But now, in these final days, that's these days, now God has spoken to us how? Through his son, Christ. That's it. That's the reference point, Christ. If we get this right, then over time, our lives align to Christ. Uh, how many have been to the symphony in here? Anybody ever go? One of the funnest parts of the symphony is before the music starts, uh, it's the tuning moment, right? Don't you kind of love the tuning moment? Uh, because uh, everybody's playing their instruments a little bit, and then the, the uh, conductor comes on stage, and then the concert master or mistress, the, like the first violinist, they come out, and every, all, every stops playing when they come out, and then what happens? That one musician plays their note A, 440. So if you're not a musician, don't even worry about it, but you, you get it, right? They play, the, they play it, and then, then everybody else starts playing. And when they all start playing, it's kind of a, like a, kind of a mess, right? It's, it's just this cacophony of noise. Everybody's playing. And then what are they doing? Here's what they're doing. Every person is playing their own instrument, and they're using that single reference point, and they're adapting. And so if this is the reference point, and I'm here, I'm flat. And I have to, what do I have to do? I have to adjust. If, if this is the reference I don't have here, I'm sharp. I have to adjust. 
everyone's adjusting to the same single note, and as they adjust the same, same single note, what happens? Once I'm adjusted, then I, then I stop, and then others stop, and then others stop. And then, then pretty soon, all you hear again is what you heard at the beginning, that single A. And then, dun-dun-dun-dun, or whatever it is, right? Like we're all on now because we're all aligned to the same what? Reference point. Listen, if the church had done this, we wouldn't be such a disaster, like Ferdinand and Isabella give the Jews 90 days to either convert or leave Spain back in the 15th century. In the name of Jesus, convert or get out. Oh, by the way, and if you leave, you can't take any possessions with you. Does that sound like Jesus? I don't think so. Uh, when uh, the church in Germany is told you can no longer baptize Jews, does that sound like Jesus? I don't think so. Does the KKK sound like Jesus? I don't think so. When a Hutu pastor invites Tutsis into their church as a place of sanctuary and then bars the door shut, lights the church on fire, it should be obvious that we've missed our calling. And here's the tragedy, it's not obvious. Because tribalism has trumped the centrality of Christ. So this is why John is so passionate. He says, listen, if when, as soon as Christ is no longer the reference point, no longer the foundation, no longer the central ethic, as soon as it's anything other than Christ, you'll divide. And so you're not the, you're not the church of dispensationalism. You're not the church of women don't preach. You're not the church of women do preach. You're not the social justice church. You're not the church of reconciliation. You're not the church against gays. You're not the church for gays. You're the church of Christ. Christ plus what? Nothing. Like, could someone say amen? Because that's so vital as the reference point and that which unites us. So we have to keep that. So when we read truth as a person, this isn't saying to us, look, if you intellectually believe that Jesus is Christ, all will be well. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, tr truth must be walked in, made visible. First John, again, uh, verse 9, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. In other words, John's telling us that uh, you have to walk in truth. If, you're, if you claim to be a person of truth, you have to walk in truth. So, so uh, if you don't love the people on the other side of the social divide, you're not walking in truth. You're walking in darkness. Uh, how do we know this? Because God is love. Jesus is the image bearer of the Father. You're called to be the image bearer of Christ. And so if Christ loved all people, you love all people. You love the all right. You love the all left. You love the Sanders fans. You love the Trump fans. You love the anti-Trump fans. You love, uh, you, you love everyone. You love the Christ follower with a different view than you on anything. Why? John 13, 34 and 35. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. He's saying here that in a world where the main issue is fragmentation and division, and all of this has come about because of sin, God's doing a new thing. God's drawing people together who in the broader culture are separated. So that it's a community, listen, of rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, black and white, immigrant and native. Educated and less so. All kinds of dividing walls broken and God is drawing people together who wouldn't otherwise be drawn together. And when you see that, it's super compelling. When, when people are sitting at the table who wouldn't otherwise sit at the table together, incredible. When I spoke uh, this summer in, on the East Coast, I had the privilege to speak, just the way that this particular uh, family conference went, uh, ended up being 
It was super diverse in every way. It was racially diverse. It was economically diverse. It was educationally diverse. And it was beautiful. To, to, it was doctrinally diverse. People from lots of different denominations. It was just so wonderful to go from table to table to table to table and sit with people whose political views, whose doctrinal views, whose educational background, whose story is so vastly different than mine and recognize... Man, we're one in Christ. And when, when all these people are, you know, are singing, great is thy faithfulness, and I look around and there's people in the room whose grandparents uh, were raised in slave households. And now here we are, one. And these people are coming up to me, a guy of incredible privilege. And I'll never forget Vera, <laughs> this black woman. Just saying, just hugging me and saying, I'm going to be praying for you and your church every day for the next year. Man, all, all that junk, but something happened and the dividing wall's broken. We need more of that in our world. So, the, so far the vision's pretty compelling, right? But here's the problem. And I know the problem, because I, I, I am part of the problem. We all are like this, yeah, yeah, whatever. Here's the problem. Richard, look, if all lifestyles, all sexual ethics, all financial ethics, all racial choices, all political choices are welcome, well, then what's our distinction? We don't have any distinction anymore, right? Uh, how can we be loving and displaying unity when we don't have the hard conversations? Well, there's two exhortations that address that. Exhortation one, walk in love. Exhortation two, walk in truth. What do you mean walk in love? Turn to 2 John. 2 John... Very short, like blink and you'll miss the page. It's like half a page. Which, by the way, if your parents ever make you memorize a whole book of the Bible, start in Second John. It's beautiful. <laughs> so, um, second, look at verse 5 of Second John. Now I ask you, lady, that's the church, the lady, the bride of Christ, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning that we love one another. Same John. Now what's he saying? Hey, you got, you got to love one another. Okay. And yet, here's what's interesting. So it's called to love, and yet the call to love is woven tightly with a call to walk in truth. Because, because look at the very next verse, verse 6. So love one another. And this is love, that you walk according to his commandment. Oh, man. So, so yeah, love actually requires... Uh, pointing each other to the reference point of Christ. That's, that's what love does. So it's tempting to reduce love to sentimentality. Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, we're just love. And so it's all good. Yeah, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you stand for. I don't care who you are. We'll just all wear the same T-shirt and hug each other, sing Kumbaya, you know, and call it a day. That's not, that's not, in fact, here's the deal, that's not love. That's actually not love. Re watch this, real love has accountability in it as well as sacrifice. And this is the hard part that's hard for some of us to hear. Like we like to emphasize the sacrifice part of love. In other words, if you're the lover, oh yeah, yeah, you're called to sacrifice. And it's true, yeah, band of brothers kind of stuff. And uh, in, in Genesis, you know, Judah uh, says to uh, Joseph, hey, uh, I'll stay as a slave, let my brother go free, substitutionary stuff. Oh, look how much he loves his brother. Yeah, that's love. That is love. 
But that's only part of love. Here's the other part of love. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 21. And uh, you don't necessarily need to turn there. I'll turn there for you. But I'm going to read it. Mark, this is where Jesus meets that guy that has been now nicknamed the rich young ruler. He says, what do I have to do to enter heaven? Uh, Jesus says, keep the law. He says, verse 20, I've kept the law. And then verse 21 is what I want you to see. Let's watch this. So now you were Jesus. Now you're the rich young ruler, first row. Uh, Now, look at him. This is what it says. Jesus felt love for him. Jesus looks at the guy and he loves him. And now watch this. Because he loves him, what does he say? You don't have to do anything. Come on in. No. This is stunning. Because he loves him, this is what he says. Oh, listen, you still lack one thing. You want to turn a life? Sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. Now, why did Jesus say that? Love. Oh, no, that's not love. Yeah, yeah, listen, that's love. What's Jesus doing? Jesus understands what it says here. He looked and he has love for him. Jesus understood that his possessions were destroying him. And, and if something's destroying someone and you remain silent, hello, that's not love. Are you hearing me? <laughs> Love and truth are kind of woven together as one cord here. And we know this, sort of, but we're so polite sometimes that we're not loving, we're enabling. And that's destructive. I mean, we don't, like, we understand this at a physical level. Some of you know this because I've been around here a while. I told this story before. But years ago, first married... I went up to turn the air conditioning on in the middle of the night. It's dark. I didn't turn any lights on. And I missed the hallway going back to the bedroom and walked into the wall. Right in the corner of the wall, I walked right in right there. Hit it right there. And then there's a big thud in the house, you know. And then I lay down again. And Donna goes, you okay? I go, yeah, I'm fine. I just missed the hall. <laughs> and then, and then uh, she says, are you sure you're okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Then she, uh, somebody's going to check. She turns the light on. And she goes, uh, no, you're not okay. And then I said, come on, forget it, go back to bed. Then she goes and gets a mirror, and like there's just blood, there's just blood, ever, like there's blood on the pillow now, and like she says, wake up, look, yeah, like this is not okay. Do you understand? Like what's the wrong answer when your spouse is, you know, profusely bleeding? Oh, good night. <laughs> See you in the morning if you wake up, you know, like that's the wrong answer. Like we all know it, the loving thing to do at that moment is to hold up a mirror so you can say to that person, do you understand, we got to go to the emergency room and stitch this thing up because you're bleeding. That's loving, that's loving to say. And it's loving to say then (laughs) that racism is evil, that dehumanizing people is evil, that erecting walls is evil, that, that that sex with pixels is evil. That sex with someone outside the covenant of marriage is destructive to love. That's, that's honest. That's loving to say. And it's unloving to not say. So isn't it interesting? We're called to love, but hello, love looks a lot like truth. And when truth-telling is woven into a cord of sacrifice and service and generosity, the, the truths being spoken, are, are they come out of a spring of love. So these, like, truth born out of anger and hate, that's not... That's not truth. And, 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 and love that's only sentimentality is not love. Truth motivated by love 
It's what you need. And by the way, that's very hard to do. Truth motivated. You can have truth motivated by anger because someone hurts your feelings. But that's not, that's your calling is truth motivated by love. This morning, Andrew Young, this, the former mayor of Atlanta, was on um, uh, Meet the Press. And the moderator, Chuck Todd, is peppering him with questions. And he says, you know, what do you really want? What do you want to see happen? He's a black man. He's got a long history of nonviolent protest. And he's suffered a great deal uh, in the pursuit of justice. And he says, look, uh, what, take down the statues. Don't take them. He says, I don't care about the statues. Whatever the statues. He says, silence the all right. Don't silence. He says, whatever. He says, you know what? I won't rest until there's shalom for everyone. Black and white, KKK, and those victims of KKK. I won't rest until I, there's shalom for everyone. That's a vision. That's a hard vision. <laughs> because it calls us uh, to set aside anger and be motivated out of love, but not sentimentality, but hard love. Love that tells the truth. Which then leads us to the final exhortation, which is walk in truth. Turn to 3 John. So long by comparison. 15 verses instead of 13. Uh, and we'll just look at a couple of verses, 2 through 4. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper, be in good health, just as your soul prospers. I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth that you are walking in truth. And I have no greater joy than this, that my children walk in truth. Truth, truth, truth. Yeah, Truth, man. And when you cherry pick truth, then you're like this. You know what that means if they walk in truth? They have a list and everybody has to check their ethics at the door. And if you don't agree, you're out. That is not truth. Listen, because he goes on, what does he say? Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish, even among strangers. In other words, he's saying that in your adherence to truth, you're hospitable to people who don't think the same way you do. Why? Because it's an orchestra. And all of us are still tuning our instruments. We're not there yet. So we have to have dialogue. So walk in truth, what does it mean? Look at verse 11. Beloved, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil is not. And so to walk in truth means verse 11. And the crux of that, of course, is we're called to discern, Hebrews 5.14, between good and evil. And listen, that requires maturity. It doesn't happen in an instant. And we have to understand, if all we got to do is look at church history to realize we blow this regularly. We failed on slavery. We failed on colonialism. We, 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 we failed on various wars. When we, when we elevated the war to the status of God's on our side, it was failure. We have to acknowledge it. And so now we live in a culture without any single moral compass. And the question on the table is this, what core truths need to govern our discussions about all the ethical issues we, we face? Here, this is it. Look, we're called to look like Jesus. That's the deal. So Jesus loved enemies? Go love your enemies. I mean, we know that. Jesus broke down social walls? Rather than building them, go break down some walls. Jesus forgave people who sinned against him? 
while still naming the sin of sin, then you do that too. Jesus declared the good news that God's ultimate reign, rather than appealing to nationalism or denominationalism or racism or democracy or socialism, Jesus said, look, it's in Jesus' name that there will be a kingdom that will come. And that defies every other category. That's what truth and love look like. So, you know, as we close this morning, we just need to pray, I think. Because uh, my own sense, as your friend and your pastor, is we live in a culture where polarization and division is not getting better. It's getting worse, all the time worse. Uh, and this is both uh, uh, a warning, because if we're passive, we'll become polarized too. And it's an opportunity. Because to the extent that we can display something different, the, uni the unifying power of Jesus, light will shine in the darkness, and men will glorify God. So I'm going to ask our leaders to come up here, our new leadership advisory team, those LAP members, if you come up here and pray with me. Uh, the pastors and staff, we're going, to, we're going to kneel down. I'm going to ask somebody, just as you're led, come forward and pray for us. You can lay your hands on us and pray a word out loud, or you just lay your hands on us and pray and leave. I'm going to ask, if you're not coming forward, to pray in groups of two or three. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our president. <laughs> he needs prayer. Pr pray Pray for the racial divides in our own city. Pray for your next step. Use our prayer books. Write prayers that we can pray with you. We have four minutes to pray together. And if staff would come up and kneel with me, we're going we're gonna to be in prayer. Let's worship together and just come forward and pray for us as you feel led. Otherwise, little groups of two or three.